Today's episode is made possible by Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school and two-time winner of the Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. A lot of people want to deepen their wine knowledge, but aren't sure how. We empower enthusiasts and professionals to level up their wine expertise with a unique approach and a clear path to becoming a confident authority in the world of wine. Listeners of this podcast enjoy a special 5% discount on all course enrollments by using the promo code Stories Behind Wine at checkout. Again, that promo code is Stories Behind Wine. La Cannabis was a great wine school. And in Paris, I expanded out of my comfort zone into restaurants and warehouses, and it all went wrong. And so I came back to the UK with my family to educate the children, well, bring up the children in England in 1982, and decided I wouldn't employ anybody ever again. So that meant I turned myself into a wine consultant. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, this is the Stories Behind Wine, a podcast dedicated to the stories, people, places, and history that influence the world of wine. In this special episode, I have the opportunity to chat with one of the wine industry's most storied and accomplished figures, Stephen Spurrier. While Stephen is perhaps best known for organizing the 1976 Paris tasting that helped catapult Napa Valley onto the world wine stage, today we catch up and talk about his latest project, Bride Valley Vineyards, one of England's premier sparkling wine producers. This is their story. My name is Stephen Spurrier, and I've been in the wine business for 55 years. Basically, I'm a wine communicator, and I think what we're going to talk about this evening is the last roll of the Spurrier dice, which is Bride Valley Vineyard in South Dorset. Excellent. Yeah, we're very excited to talk about Bride Valley and your project there. I do have a couple of questions leading up to, to talking about Bride Valley. I know our listeners would be interested in knowing how your journey in the wine trade began. I know you hold a degree from the prestigious London School of Economics. How did you transition into the wine trade after university? I was a wine merchant in Paris, Carvel Madeleine and L'Académie du Vin. Well, L'Académie du Vin was a great wine school. And in Paris, I expanded out of my comfort zone into restaurants and warehouses and it all went wrong and so I came back to the UK with my family to educate the children well bring up the children in England in 1982 and decided I wouldn't employ anybody ever again so that meant I turned myself into a wine consultant writer observer and I joined the counter in, I think, September 1993. Even though I came back with my family in 82, I was commuting to Paris until 89, and it all went under in 1989. And then I was, for six months, head of Harrods Wine Department, which put me very much back in the center of the London wine trade. And I fell out with Mr. Al Fayed, the owner of Harrods, because I became too popular. So anyway, that ended. 
and I was taken on as a consultant by Singapore Airlines, along with Michael Hill Smith, Australia's first master of wine, and Anthony Dyer's Blue, of course, you know about. And so that really was a bit of a savior because that gave me a an international job of high profile and also quite a substantial income. And then I joined Decanter in I think September '93, and stayed with Decanter until May this year. So um, a whole chapter in my book is called Life with Decanter. Once you turn yourself into a jobbing journalist or a traveling journalist who's ready to go anywhere, taste anything. And I was very high profile. I was recognized as a very good taster. So I really got around the world and could make quite a impression by writing about it all in decanter. And so by bit to get back to Bright Valley, my wife Bella bought we bought a lovely village house in 1987, but there wasn't enough land for her because she needed more land for her horses. So there was a farm coming up next door, and so 200-acre farm. So she acquired that as well, and I discovered walking around the farm, it had an enormous amount of chalk on it, and I was still 87 in Paris at the time, running the Academy du Vin. So I put a couple of blocks of chalk in my pocket and put them on the desk in Paris in front of Michel Bertin and said, ask Michel, Michel, where do you think those are from? And he said, well, Champagne, of course. And I said, no, they're from South Dorset. And he said, in that case, you should plant a vineyard. <laughs> so that was in 87, and I didn't plant a vineyard, but it did put the idea in my mind. And undertaking, were you the first to plant a vineyard in southern England with the idea to make sparkling wine? No, I didn't plant. I didn't plant until 2009, because basically English sparkling wine, which is what we're talking about, although the vineyards now are being very successful making still wine, English sparkling wine was unheard of. In England, we had the hybrids like Madeleine, Angevina, and basically German grape varieties, and no one was making sparkling wine until Nightember came along, Sandy Moss from Chicago. And I remember going to, this was really most important, going to the award ceremony of the International Wine and Spirit Competition and being handed a glass of sparkling wine and asked what it was. And I said, well, champagne, of course, certainly a Blonde Blanc, probably a Grand Cru. Why? Nightember, Nightember 1989. So this was in 96. And so that started the whole ball. That put the whole ball in play. After Nightember, there was Ridgeview and so on and so forth. So by the late 90s, there was quite a buzz around English sparkling wine. The more I walked around the, the farm, which faces due south towards the sea, I, and it's a very steep slope, it's in a big bowl, I could really feel that the lower parts of the slope were suitable for vineyards. And so in 
2007, I put a dossier together to show to the Boisset family, who I knew very well, and they're very big in Cremont de Bourgogne, and they are in Varichon et Claire in Savoie. Anyway, they were mad about the idea, and they wanted to do a joint venture with about 30 hectares on the 200, on the 70 hectare farm, and you know, build a winery and so on and so forth. But after endless research, it became plain that really only 10 to 12 hectares were absolutely suitable for planting. So they said, okay, you and Bella, your wife, you plant those 10, 12 hectares. You get the vines from Pepinier Guillaume, who, as you might know, supply the Romilly County and and Domaine Lefebvre and Bollinger and Roderer. I mean, they're the greatest fine nursery in France. Then they said, you take the grapes to Ian Edwards at Furlier Estate, who's only half an hour away, who was English winemaker of the year 2012. And if all goes well, we'll buy your wine. So off we went, first planting in 2009, a tiny bit in 2010, 11, 12, and 13. So we wrapped it up in 13 with just a fraction over 10 hectares with 55% Chardonnay, 25% Pinot Noir, and 20% Pinot Meunier. So that's the background. And the Meunier hasn't behaved very well. We're ripping a bit out. We're planting a bit more. But the first vintage was tiny, just a few hundred bottles in. 2011, which was luckily my 70th birthday, so that was a great slap on the back. Uh, 2012, we were rained off, as was Night Timber, as were many vineyards in the south of England. 13 suffered young vines and the rain from the previous year. 14 was a super vintage, but then 15, 16, and 17 were very small. And frankly, before the 18 vintage, we were looking at under well under a third of a bottle of vine, and I'd done all my calculations on one bottle of vine, so I wasn't feeling very happy. And then 18 comes along, which was a Mediterranean vintage in the southern England, and we made one and almost one and a half bottles of vine. Uh, we even made some still Pinot Noir, which is damn good, and we made some still Chardonnay, of course. And 19 was another quite big vintage, not quite as good in quality. And 20 was a very small vintage. But we're back on track at Bright Valley, and we're, we've opened a, a tasting room in the stable block behind the house. I've created a wine and art room with all my collection of wine paintings and artifacts. And we've launched what's called the Bright Valley Club to try and get members across the country, and we've really got 40 or 50 members, and they get a discount of 15%. All the kind of, all the wineries are creating clubs because they want to get direct to the public as they possibly can. So that's the background on, say, the production side, and the quality. We have very chalky soil. We have marvelous natural acidity. It just supernatural acidity, which can be a little green first off, but I think it's really what you want.
And in fact, Christian, I was at a conference called Fine Minds for Fine Wines two years ago in Chui, Grand Cru in Champagne. And I showed my Blonde Blanc 2014 to the owner of the Grand Cru. And he said, Mr. Spurrier, you've got what we've lost, acidity. <laughs> and global warming in Champagne, I mean, they're handling it very well. They, they've never made better wine in Champagne than they're making now. But we have natural acidity. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a marvelous project, and I've tried some of the wines, and they are absolutely fantastic and available here in the U.S. as well. And what's marvelous, I mean, we're having to replant Pinot Meunier because we're short on it. But we created a Cremant. We're the only Cremant in England. As, as you know, a Cremant is up to four bars of fizz as opposed to six for a fully sparkling wine. And that was because the 15 vintage was so damn cold and high in acidity, we picked it just seven degrees alcohol. And you know, you can shaptalize, but you know, it's pretty over the top and 12.5 acidity. So we made a tiny bit of rose, but we couldn't make our normal Bruce Reserve and Blonde de Blanc just because the wines were too damned acidic. And so I asked Ian Edwards a winemaker for his state, I said, well, what do we do? And he said, well, you wait until 2016 and you make a blend. That's what they do in Champagne. And so we waited until 2016, which was about 8.2 degrees natural alcohol and and 9.5 acidity. And the blend was good. The blend was okay, but it was still very aggressive on the attack. And I knew because we have to sell our wines quite young, I didn't want that because if a wine is aggressive when it comes into the mouth, it's going to leave that aggression with you the whole damn time. So I asked Ian whether he could make a Cremor. He said, well, of course I can. And the fact that the Cremor has less fizz, it creams. This is the French word Cremor means creamy. It actually almost creams across the palate as it comes in on the attack. And of course, then it has the wonderful Granny Smith acidity and all the Pride Valley fruits. So we made the first Cremant in England. None of my colleagues have copied me. I can't think why. Well, I, well, I mean, I can't think why. And it's our biggest seller. We, it goes wonderfully by the glass in restaurants, and it's a unique wine. Was this a one-off, or is this going to be continuing style that Bride Valley produces? I mean, it's kept the Bride Valley style. I mean, we have, I'm sure, I'm not alone, I'm sure, I know Whiston, well, and Cusborne, and, well, I mean, big, 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 big producers like Ridgeview will have many, many, many different cubes. We tend to just make vintage wine. So in 2018, we've got our rosé, which we make in the Seigneur process. We take the best Pinot Noir grapes to Ian Edwards, and he presses them very, 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 very slowly to draw off the juice, which is darker in color and actually fuller in flavor than a straight rosé. And then we cut that with probably 45% Chardonnay, and it's very successful. So that's called Rosé Bella, named after my wife. 
we have the Cremor, which is our biggest volume. Uh, we have Brut Reserve, which I've now converted since 2018 into a 65% Pinot Noir, 35% Chardonnay blend. I'm really happy with it because the Pinot Noir does bring a bit of weight, but we don't lose the elegance. And then, of course, we have the Blanc de Blanc, which is our benchmark calling card because it's the wine which so perfectly expresses the chalky soil and cool climate. So that's the range of the four sparklers. And in 2018, as I said, we managed to make a really nice Pinot Noir. I mean, for Pinot lovers, they really like it. I can't say it's cheap. It's 20 English pounds on the shelves, and you can get damn good Pinot Noir for 12 English pounds. But as Dorset Pinot Noir, it's very expressive, damn good wine. And we made Chardonnay in 2018. And do you think that will be a continuing theme to create still wines along with the sparkling wines? In the English press, and uh, not, of course, on export, because I don't think these wines really have a market in the export market at all. The English still wines are becoming very much talked about. Of course, the biggest planted white grape is Bacchus, and I really like Bacchus because it's soft and charming and floral and summery. But, I mean, the Chardonnay, our Chardonnay, Hugh Johnson said if he didn't know it was from South Dorset, he put it straight into Montagny. Mm. I think we're probably at 15%, 10, 15% still wine. I think the English market will probably try and move to about 15, 20% still wine because, well, they're very expressive and quite frankly, they're easier to sell. I mean, people drink still wine every day. They buy a bottle of Dorset Breitweiss Chardonnay, put it in the fridge, and they drink it. Whereas the sparkling wines, they have to wait for specifications. So we're very keen with the age of the vines. I mean, now the vineyard is reaching past its 10th year. We're very keen to see what quality can come out of still. And of course, we we can't make a decision at the last minute because if you pick for still, you do different things to it than if you pick for sparkling. But this year, even though it was a very, very small crop, we probably made uh, 20% to a shot What an amazing story Bride Valley is. I mean, would you have ever imagined when you started your career in wine that you would one day end up not only being a vintner, but being a vintner in the UK? Well, I mean, I certainly could not have ever imagined I'd end up living down in Dorset and planting a vineyard. I mean, I'm certainly not a vintner. I mean, I, we don't have a winery, and I intervene at the blending and the dosage and that. So I'm hands off. I know nothing. I mean, I'm just a taster. So I'm a producer. I'm a great producer. But the brand Bride Valley is working very well, and it's all part of the house package. I mean, we've got a lovely, this is a early 19th century house, early George, well, late Georgian, and the stable block has converted just wonderfully 
into a tasting room and wine and art room. And I said, we formed the, the wine club, so we're going to create a club room. And then in the back, behind the stable block, we've got all the water coming off our farm, runs over a lovely waterfall, and I've got a sculpture collection with half a dozen really quite impressive sculptures. And it's Bright Valley is very much wine and art. And I think, and my two children agree, we've created a package. I mean, as Philippine de Rossio said, you know, making wines easy is the first 150 years that are difficult. And so this, you know, we had a sheep farm on my wife where the vines, there's still some sheep because she, she rents out the, a lot of the farm. But the sheep lost a lot of money. And I got fed up with financing those bloody things. So my aim was to turn a, a loss-making sheep farm into a profit-making vineyard. And I think when the chips are down, it'll certainly wash its face. I'm really looking at a... We're trying to sell as much direct as we can, and we're getting a lot of success with that. I'd like to think of a 5% return, but it's just created something out of nothing. And I can't tell you, Kristen, how satisfying it is to have done that. And luckily, there was enough financial family to finance it. So we, you know, we've not borrowed from the bank. It's just that we've created something. We've added a vineyard to what was a very nice estate anyway. Congratulations. And I encourage our listeners to go out and try Bride Valley, enjoy Bride Valley. English sparkling wines are phenomenal. And like you said, the acidity is always so refreshing. And for those of you who want to know more about Stephen's journey in wine, I recommend you, you seek out the book, Stephen Spurrier, A Life in Wine, available through the Academy Divan Library, which is another one of your projects as well. And we've talked about it. That is, I mean, towards the end of my life, um, I'm 80 this year, to have seen Seeing Bride Valley come into its 10th year of production is very satisfying. But to have created with Simon McMurtry and Hugh Johnson the candidate of our library, that's an immense satisfaction because I was complaining to Hugh about two years ago over lunch that bookshops didn't sell white books anymore. And if they did, there were reference books or there were how-to-buy books and that the literature of wine had been lost. And so a lot of what we're doing at L'Academie du Vin Library is recreating the literature of wine. We just republished Hugh Johnson's The Story of Wine, which has been out of print for 20 years. We've written the book on Bordeaux, and we're actually in the process of creating on California, which will be very good. And that is really most exciting because it's something which will go on into the next generation and we don't, we're a library and we don't intend our books to go out of print. So I, I will, my memoirs go out of print because memoirs do. But I mean, I think we're publishing four books a year. Within five or six years, there'll be maybe 20 books in the Academy of our library. And that's a lot for people to choose from. I'm very, very proud of that. It will be a wonderful legacy. It is. They are amazing books. And thank you for taking on that challenge to bring back these publications to wine connoisseurs and to the public. 
Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations on all your successes. Well, I love talk business. It's always nice to talk to you, and I think communication is all. <laughs> it is. It is. I've often been asked how I would sum up my life in wine, and it's as a communicator. Of course, not right away, not when I was just learning, but as soon as, I mean, l'Académie du Vin, I wanted to call it l'Ambassade du Vin because I thought of myself as a wine ambassador, and l'Ambassade du Vin was taken, so luckily I called it l'Académie du Vin, which is much smarter. But communication is all, and that's the business that you're in, and you're damn good at it. So very nice to talk to somebody who's on the same wavelength. Well, thank you. That's an immense compliment coming from you, and you have done so much for the wine world in your career, and we are grateful for it and grateful for your time today and look forward to raising a glass of Bride Valley to you this evening. Yeah, we'll have all the Bride Valley 2018 in America in late summer. Great. Thank you for joining us this week on the Stories Behind Wine. If you would like to suggest an interview subject or show topic, please email us at sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. Again, that email address is sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. If you like what you've heard, we hope that you'll visit our website, napavalleywineacademy.com forward slash podcast and share us with your friends and colleagues. We'd also really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. It really helps out. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous episodes and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. Join us next time for another episode of the Stories Behind Wine. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>